How I love your word, how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Lord God, thank you for Debbie. Thank you so much for her. Thank you for the gentle way that she leads us as a body. Thank you, Father, for her faith. Thank you for her faithfulness in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the way that she opens up the word to us. Father, and I pray, Father, that as she comes this morning, that you will shepherd her words. Heavenly Father, anoint her as she speaks. And bless her, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, the passage assigned for us is our return to our journey through the book of Acts. So that means that we're going to be opening our Bibles, if you have them with you, to Acts and chapter 24. And in a moment, I'm going to ask um, our readers to read it in two parts. We're going to read the whole chapter Um, But don't worry, I'm not going to spend hours talking about every single verse. I know I could do that, but I won't this morning. But I want us just to, as we prepare to just hear what the Lord was putting on my heart from this chapter for us, I just want us to have faith, just to stop for a moment and have faith in your own heart that the Lord wants to speak to you from his word. God's word is living and active, it says. And it's alive today to come and to bring us strength and power, comfort, healing, all the things that we need. Let's just take a moment in our heart to choose to remember that and to want to be strengthened in his word today. That's my prayer for us. But before the readers come, I will recap the story because otherwise we'll be kind of landing in at this moment in Paul's life and journey with Jesus, and perhaps you'll be forgetting, like I did when I was looking at it, how far he's already come. So a quick recap. Back in chapter 21, do you remember how Paul was in Jerusalem? And he was reporting to the church and the elders there all about what God was doing through his preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember, he was doing a kind of report back time. And uh, as part of that time, he tries to go and worship in the temple in Jerusalem. But while he's there, he gets accused by some of the leading Jews um, of telling people to break Jewish laws, of defiling the temple, of by bringing Greeks into the temple, which was against their rules. Um, and all of these accusations were completely untrue. Paul denies those charges, but he does affirm that God has called him to preach to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish peoples. And because of this, the crowd gets so angry that they try and lynch him. Do you remember? And we had a few 3T services where we were <laughs> acting that out, some people getting into character. Um, And the Romans have to come and step in at that point and rescue him. And then they keep him under arrest while they're trying to find out what's going on. The Romans bring him before the Jewish council to try to understand the dispute, why there's all this argy-bargy going on. And uh, Paul says very clearly that he is on trial for having a hope 
in the resurrection from the dead, which is something that I feel we all need to take hold of afresh today. The hope in the resurrection from the dead. And he says, that's why I'm on trial. When he speaks that out, it divides the crowd. It starts another row. And the Romans have to step in again and stop him from being lynched. And uh, while he's in custody again, Paul finds out about a plot that the Jews have got going to murder him when he's on his way between Roman barracks. And, uh, but he warns the Romans. Again, they manage to rescue him and deliver him safely to Felix, the Roman governor, um, so that this Roman governor, Felix, can find out what all the fuss is really all about. And so the high priest and the Jews who are accusing him come down with a Roman lawyer to speak for them and to make their case against Paul. And that is where we're at in our journey today. So I'm going to ask Paolo, I think, first to come and read the first part of Acts 24 and then Alex to read the second part. So hopefully I've refreshed your memories a little bit. After five days, the priest Ananias came down with some elders, with an attorney named Tertullius, and he brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have thought through you attain much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for our nation, we acknowledge this is in, very, in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness, but that I may not weary you any further, I beg you and to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up this session among the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and, he, and then he, we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our law. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets." having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. 
Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them. For the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jew- Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away, for the, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money should be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. I want to talk for a few minutes this morning about three things from that passage. I want us to think about truth, about conscience, and about resurrection. Truth, conscience, and resurrection. So let's start off with a few thoughts about truth. You know, these accusations that are being made against Paul in this passage are a real confusion. There is some truth in it. There are some half-truths in it. There is a lot of spin in it. There are some hidden agendas in it. And there are also some outright lies going on in this um, accusation that is being brought And the accusation falls into these three main parts that you can see on the screen behind me. This is what Paul has to respond to. Number one, the accusation that he is the kind of person who stirs up riots wherever he goes. That's the first thing they have against him. Secondly, that he is a ringleader of some new religious sect that is rising up. And thirdly, that he was trying and intending to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem, to defile it, to dishonor it, to break the rules, and to make it unclean in some way. Now, you might kind of think to yourself, well, why would all of these accusations even matter to that Roman governor who is listening to these charges being brought against him? Why would he even really care? But actually, all three of those accusations would have mattered to the Romans in power because the Romans were all about their whole strategy of empire building was all about exercising a ruthless control of the people. And they were to 
to keep civil peace at all costs because the whole stability of their far-reaching empire depended upon the people kind of going with the flow, getting on with it. So if there were revolutions going on, if there were pockets of rebellion going on in any part of their conquered territories, and uh, if those rebellions seemed to be gaining any traction at all, then they knew, the Romans knew that there would be no shortage of disgruntled peoples around the place who wanted to suddenly rally together and fight back for their freedom, who would come um, to, to join the cause. And so the Romans generally wanted to just quash any uprisings or rebellions that were creeping out in their territories immediately. And usually they did it by just putting to death the ringleaders of those things. On the other hand, there was also in the Roman rule a kind of philosophy um, of ruling that was keen to give the impression, at the very least, of religious freedom throughout the empire so that the conquered peoples could continue to worship their gods and to express their religion and to kind of have an identity in their culture and maintain that sense of togetherness and who they were and their dignity as a people group. Because then, of course, it would be far more likely if they had all of those concessions given to them, they would be more likely to just settle down and accept the Roman rule. If they were given that much freedom to express their religion, then they'd probably behave themselves and be cooperative with whatever the Romans wanted. So there are these two competing um, philosophies, if you like. And that is what the Roman governor Felix is having to balance in his assessment of Paul and what's going on with him and how he's going to respond to these accusations. So the Jewish accusers, they are hoping that those first considerations are going to win out that they will see Paul as a potential leader of a revolt and want to get rid of him. And Paul is hoping that the second lot of those considerations will win out and that they will see him simply as someone who is expressing his religious beliefs in a way that is compatible entirely with Roman law and therefore he should just be set free to go his way. So what do I mean on the screen behind me by calling this a cocktail of truth half-truth, spin, hidden agendas, and outright lies, because that's what we have here. Well, let's think about those accusations for a moment, one by one. First of all, so did Paul stir up riots wherever he went? don't know what you think if you were making that judgment. Well, maybe we might see that one as a half-truth, because it is true when we think back over the story, can you remember it over these last months as we've been walking through Acts together? It is true that wherever Paul goes, trouble does often seem to spring up around him, doesn't it? There are riots, there are difficulties, there are arguments and uproars that seem to follow him around a bit. And at times, you could be forgiven for reading the story in a way that seems that he's not trying very hard to diffuse them either. And he even admits in this passage himself that he did stand up and shout out something about the resurrection from the dead to these people and that that stirred up a conflict. But it's certainly not true 
that, as the accusations are implying, that Paul is aggressively trying to raise up an army to fight the Romans or something like that. And in this particular instance in Jerusalem, it is definitely not true that Paul was looking for trouble in any way, shape or form, or trying to stir things up. The opposite, in fact. And he points out in his defense, as the verses go on, that he wasn't even in Jerusalem for long enough to actually start something like that. He'd only been in Jerusalem. He says he arrived 12 days ago, and probably, if you work it out, probably about six of those days he's been spent under Roman arrest anyway. So he'd have had six days to get into the city, to try to raise up an army, to conscript people to his cause, and to start a riot. There just wasn't time, and that's what Paul is saying. Can't be true. So maybe we can see that as some half-truths. There has been trouble around Paul, but he's not trying to stir it up. So was he a ringleader of a new religious sect? Is that true? Well, actually, that is perhaps the truest of the things that they said about him. And he admits this. He kind of puts his hands up to this one and says, okay, guilty is charged. Because um, when he's defending himself, I think it's in verse 14. But what he points out is, he says, yes, well, yes, I am a ringleader for Christianity, if you want to call it that. I am a follower of Jesus, and I am somebody who wants to bring more people into that faith. But, he says, my beliefs um, actually contain all the same key and important elements that the faith of my accusers does. He says, I worship the same God as they do, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the patriarchs. He says, I believe in the Old Testament law and the prophets, and I'm seeking to live by them. So do these Jews over here. And he says, and I also believe in a final resurrection one day in the future where God is going to judge each person according to the lives that they've lived. And we'll revisit that in a few minutes, a bit later on. So there is some truth in their accusations, but Paul is saying, but that shouldn't be seen as a dangerous truth by the Romans. Because it's no different accepting my religion, says Paul, than it is accepting what the Jews believe. So, okay, this one was perhaps quite full of truth. Got some half-truths, got some truth. What about the third accusation? Was he trying and intending to defile the temple and to desecrate the temple? Well, no. And that is one that is an outright lie. It was a completely fabricated accusation against him. And Paul denies it in verses 17 and 18. He says, far from it, I came to Jerusalem because I wanted to give alms. I wanted to give charitable donations to the Jewish people to help the poor, to help the needy. I wanted to present my offerings and my worship in the temple in a compliant way, in a humble way. I wanted to come and worship God together with my Jewish brothers, he's saying. And uh, he went through all the purification ceremonies that were necessary for him to enter into the temple. So no, in no way was Paul seeking to defile the temple. So in the midst of these accusations, truths, half-truths, lies, there's also a whole load of spin going on. 
<clears throat> Did you notice all the flattery <laughs> that the lawyer starts with when he is making his case against Paul. Did you notice that in the earlier verses of this chapter, verses 2 and 3? He's trying to butter up this Governor Felix, and he's trying to manipulate him with his clever words to take their side. So he praises him, and he praises his policies, and he kind of makes out that this guy is the sole reason for peace in the area of his jurisdiction. And that he's an amazing leader and everything he does has just brought, you know, togetherness and reconciliation for the peoples um, of his area, of his province. Perhaps the lawyer is also hinting that if Felix doesn't find favor with their accusations today, then maybe the peace won't be kept for so very much longer. Maybe they'll cause a bit more trouble than they've been causing up till now. And notice as well how he takes a sideswipe at the Roman commander Lysias, who actually was the one who rescued Paul and saved his life from the lynchings more than once. But in verse 7, this lawyer takes a sideswipe at him because he's trying to shift blame, shift accusation. He's trying to paint other people as the bad guys so that they can look like they're all smelling of roses in this matter. And he paints this guy like a kind of clumsy thug who sort of butts in unnecessarily on the proceedings. And now it's his fault. It's Lysias' fault that we're even having to stand here and waste your time today, Felix. You know, I'm so sorry. If he'd just let us get on with it, we would have sorted everything out by now. And you would never even have had to have thought about this. That is what he is trying to do. In fact, the truth is Lysias did them a favor by stopping them in that moment from killing Paul, from murdering him in the street. That was what was about to happen and they would have been um, put, taken to trial um, for a, a street killing like that if they'd let it go ahead. In fact, he did them a favor, but they put their spin on the case. They put their perspective, their spin on it in order to win an advantage. And what about these hidden agendas? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? There's no mention at all in their case of the plot that they were making to kill Paul to assassinate him on his journey between barracks. Of course, there's no acknowledgement that actually the truth is they don't want to hear a proper trial at all. They just want him dead at all costs. <laughs> they don't mention that. And there's no mention that probably the real reason that the high priest who was a very, very important figure in those times. It's actually inconceivable that this man who's supposed to present himself at all times with this great dignity and pompousness and uh, respect in the community, why on earth did he you know, jump on a horse or however he got there and ride these days' journey all the way to see Felix the governor to be personally involved in trying this case against this man, Paul, who's just a nobody, um, just, a, you know, just somebody who causes trouble in the marketplace. But what, why is the high priest of the Jews so interested in this case that he himself comes in person to help make the accusations? Well, he doesn't mention that probably it's because the last time Paul stood before him, Paul humiliated him. Um, we don't know whether it was deliberate or not. Scripture isn't very clear. But certainly the high priest felt snubbed by what Paul said, and he was fuming and wanted his revenge he wants to see this guy go down. Hidden agendas that are not openly being talked about. And there is a clever and a confusing mix 
of truth and lies and perspectives and agendas here in this passage. And I don't know if for any of you sitting here today that sounds familiar. Isn't a lot of what we listen to in our world today full of just the same sort of stuff? Don't we hear a lot of those things through our public figures, through our media, through our world leaders at times? Yeah, okay, there may be truth, but there's also a lot of half-truth. There's a massive load of spin. There's a bunch of hidden agendas in the background, and there are lies. We know there are lies from time to time, perhaps more often than we realize. And in that kind of environment, it takes a lot of discernment and a lot of skill to unpick the truth from the lies and to weed out the spin and the agendas. And in fact, I want to say to us about truth this morning that it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to recognize it and not to be deceived in the times that we live in. And I want to say that to us really seriously here today. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us not to be deceived in the times we live in because we listen to a bunch of a mixture of stuff just like was being spoken about Paul all the time. It says about Jesus in Isaiah in chapter 11, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see. He will not make a decision only by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Jesus carries the power of the Holy Spirit to give him the anointing of discernment and wisdom so that we can clearly recognize truth. And we need to come to Jesus with the claims that we hear being made all around us in the world, you know, from the public places, but also in our private conversations with people around us. We need to come to Jesus with the claims that are being made and let him help us to sift it all by the power of his Holy Spirit. Because if we are not living like that in these days, people of God, we will live in a state of confusion. We will never know what to believe, who to trust, how to live right, how to walk confidently in these times. And more importantly, perhaps, we will be open to deception. We will be open to being deceived. And maybe there's an area of confusion in your life that you're asking for the Lord to give you wisdom over. And I believe that we want to pray for that this morning, that the Lord will speak and help us to recognize truth when we hear it. But to really discern truth, we need to be people who deal in truth, like Paul did, a person of integrity, which brings me to my next point about conscience. I want to say a few words 
about conscience today. Because in verse 16, Paul says, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before people. And I don't know how you feel when you hear that. Maybe some of us think, well, that's a very bold claim. You know, you sound like you're bigging yourself up a bit, Paul, that, uh, you know, I'm always trying to do the right thing. And uh, maybe it sounds a little bit like that in our ears. But actually, when you look at the passage, it is the truth. It is the truth that Paul is somebody who displays the fact that he has a clear and a clean conscience. That's how he can behave the way he does in this situation. I wonder how you would behave. I wonder how I would behave when put on trial in this kind of way. You know, I think we might easily go to the tactics of that Roman lawyer. I think we might easily go for the flattery and the buttering up, or we might think how best we can use our words to manipulate the situation into our favor. How can I put my spin on it? How can I give it my edge? How can I bring my perspective to the fore and make sure everyone else's is crowded out to the back or miss represented in some way, I think we might do that to save ourselves. But you don't see that in Paul as he stands up here. There's such a contrast of how Paul addresses this Roman governor in these moments. And you know, the history books um, tell us outside of the Bible, they tell us that this guy Felix, he was a ruthless, jealous, power-grabbing, self-advancing, womanizing kind of leader. And uh, there are all kinds of of intrigues and uh, scandals that surrounded him. But knowing all of that, knowing the kind of man that he was standing before, the kind of man who had his life in his hands, Paul very simply addresses him, no flattery, just a simple statement of fact, at the opening of his speech when he says in verse 10, you know, okay, you've been doing this a long time, Felix. That's what he says, basically. You've been in this position for a long time. So I'm trusting, implication being, I'm trusting, says Paul, that you can see what's really going on here. You know these Jews and the way they behave and the way they act. Um, So you're going to know that they're trumping up some charges against me here. You've been doing this a long time. And then Paul says, so I cheerfully make my defense before you. I love that word. I love the fact that Paul says it. I cheerfully. Who could be cheerful in a time like that? Paul could be facing execution if he's found guilty of some of these, of these charges. But Paul says, you know what? I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm at peace. I cheerfully make my defense today. He is confident that, you know what, no matter what you decide about me, Felix, before God and before people, I haven't done anything wrong. And I'm at peace with that inside. He even admits one of the charges against him. Yes, I am a ringleader for Christians, if you want to call me that. He even offers an extra possible charge that they might make against him in verse 21. He says, I did shout out, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. And that might have been a contributing factor to this disturbance. But that's for you to judge, he says to Felix, simply and honestly and clearly and with integrity. And you know what I noticed? I noticed that Paul in these moments, he doesn't even try to squeeze in an opportunity to preach the gospel. 
You know, in this passage, did you notice he doesn't even mention the name of Jesus here? You might have expected that Paul would. You might have expected that he would just, you know, take any opportunity to shoehorn something in. But actually, he sticks to what he's being asked. He defends himself simply and unemotionally. Why? Because underneath it all, he has the attitude of someone whose conscience is clear before God. He's not afraid. And he's not desperate And he's not trying to prove a point. And even if they put him to death, Paul knows he can meet his maker with a clear conscience. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? To be able to say about anybody. There's an incredible peace that comes with knowing, I'm ready to meet you, Jesus. Whenever my time comes, I'm ready to meet you. I'm at peace with you. I'm at peace with myself. It's a beautiful thing. And we can contrast all of that with the way that Felix responds. When he meets with Paul privately later on, he brings his wife along. He asks more about faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul starts to talk to him about the need for confession and repentance and the need to lead a holy kind of life. In verse 25, it says, Paul talked to him about righteousness, self-control, judgment to come. Paul's conscience is clear, but Felix's obviously isn't because it says that he is terrified when Paul talks that way in verse 25. The word literally in Greek means he was inside his fear. He was swallowed up by fear when Paul talks about those things. It's a very strong word. And he knows deep down inside, Felix knows that his life wouldn't meet God's standards if he were judged today. And although he is interested in who Jesus is and what this new religion is all about, he's not yet ready to repent, to get a clean conscience. You know, I put this... um, quote up behind me by Ogden Nash. He says, there's only one way to achieve happiness on this terrestrial ball, and that is to have either a clear conscience or none at all. There's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? But none of us can achieve a clear conscience without receiving the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. Because we've all sinned. And we've all done things wrong in God's sight. And because our conscience is the line in to our soul and our spirit, it is the connection that the Holy Spirit uses most often to communicate with people. He speaks to us through our conscience. And whenever we move outside of God's heart and purpose for us, it's going to trouble our conscience. It's going to disturb us. But the sad thing is that more often than not, We try to deal with our troubled conscience by reasoning and explaining and justifying all our actions until we've built a case to defend ourselves with against our own conscience and against God's Spirit speaking through it. And often it's a case that is just as much of a cocktail of that truth and that half-truth and that spin and the agendas and the lies as the one was being made against Paul here. But we can't even tell the difference, really, because 
We're so steeped in it. We're so used to hearing it in our world. There's a great confusing mixture of how to speak truth, how to be full of truth, how to be a person of integrity. But, you know, making this kind of case against our conscience does not fix the problem. And it will continue to bother us until we are willing to just come to Jesus and let him speak and let him bring truth to bear on our lives. Let him be the judge and let him cleanse it all. Not on the basis of what we have done or why we did it, but on the basis of what he has done in dying on the cross to just remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. You know, some people do shut down their conscience so it won't bother them anymore, like Ogden Nash says. And maybe they find a kind of happiness in that position, but they probably don't lead lives that make anybody else particularly happy. But others of us, perhaps more of us, walk around with a continual feeling of a guilty conscience. And we feel conflicted and troubled about everything. And a lot of it is probably false guilt that gets heaped upon us, coming from false assessments that we're making of ourselves or false judgments that others have made about us, about our character, our behavior. But this is not, I want to say this morning, this is not what the Christian walk is all about, continually feeling guilty. That is not the life of a follower of Jesus. This is what happens when we won't come regularly to the Lord and ask him, like David did, to search us and to know us and to see if there's any wicked way in us. And then we give it to him. We lay it before him. We lay it on him, on Jesus as he dies on the cross so that we can be free of it and so that he can give us his new and resurrected life. You know, some of us do the first part of that. We come before the Lord and we say, come show me, Lord, how terrible I am. Show me all the bad things about me. But then we don't carry on. We don't do the next part We feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But then what happens is, perhaps even without meaning to, we bring our defense case forward again. And instead of just listening and allowing Jesus to complete his work of conviction and cleansing by the Holy Spirit, instead of hearing what the Lord wants us to do about the things we feel bad about, so that we can be obedient to it. Instead of really listening to that, we just bring our case forward again and it stops the whole process and our conscience remains heavy and not clear. Which brings me to the last thing I want to say just for a couple of minutes about resurrection. Because Paul says that it is his belief in the resurrection from the dead And the final judgment that helps him to lead a life where he works hard at keeping a clean conscience every day. In other words, Paul's belief in the resurrection of the dead helps him, motivates him to live a holy kind of life. A life that is continually washed and cleansed and uh, empowered by the resurrected life of Jesus. In verses 15 and 16, Paul says... I believe in the resurrection 
And in view of this, I lead my life with a clear conscience. So why does this idea of the good and the bad being resurrected for judgment in the future, why does this spur Paul on so much to live a holy life? Do you think it's just that he is terrified of the prospect of God condemning him for all the bad things that he has done in his life up until that day? Well, maybe, but I don't really think so because I see in Paul someone who knew the forgiveness of his Savior, Jesus. And he knew that his encounter with Jesus on that Damascus road that he talks about so often, it's so important to him in his life and, his, and, and the, the way that he's living his life day by day. He knew that that had rescued him from that judgment. No, I think it's more than that. I think Paul lived, like we do, in between two resurrections. The resurrection of Jesus was behind him in the past, and the final resurrection of God's judgment on our lives ahead of him in the future. And for Paul, these two resurrections, they're not two separate events that we're moving between, but they are closely linked and they need to be held together and understood together and trusted together. And it is because Jesus rose from the dead and because it was witnessed by so many people who have confidence in it um, and who went on to talk about it and to write about it, it's because of that that Paul and we can have confidence too that there will be another resurrection of humankind in the future. Jesus is called the first fruits of that resurrection and his resurrection was the beginning of that process of giving a whole new life to the people of this world that will eventually be totally free from the effects of sin and evil and Satan that are rife in this world. And the Christian life, it's meant to be lived by picking up the truth of that first resurrection in Jesus and then fixing our eyes on the truth of that second resurrection that we can be confident is to come. The resurrection that reminds us that this life and the experiences that we have in it is not all there is. That our years that are lived out on this earth, be they many or be they few or be they fewer than they should be. The years that are lived out on this earth are not the sum total of what we were made for. But that they are part of what is fitting us and shaping us for eternity. For a life that is to be lived with Jesus in fullness. And that is finally free from all of the affliction of sorrow and sighing and suffering and sin and pain and death. And we fix our eyes, and Paul understood this so deeply, we fix our eyes on that future reality and we carry that truth of Jesus' resurrection from the past, we carry it closely with us and we run with all our might towards that future reality and we carry that truth with us and we run and we don't get distracted. 
and we don't let sin slow us down. We bring it to the cross. We deal with it daily. We get our conscience cleaned up and cleansed. We don't get tangled up with the stuff that will actually only matter in this world, and it will not matter into eternity. So we don't let it tangle us up and trip us up and slow us down. We get rid of that, and we invest in the things that will continue on into eternity forever and ever. We invest our lives in goodness and in truth and in love and in blessing and in life and in mercy and in grace and in restoration and in prayer and in talking about Jesus and in anything else that belongs to that beautiful kingdom that we see a vision of in the future. And if we, like Paul, can hold on tight to those two resurrections and run hard with them and live hard for Jesus, you know what? We will find that along the way, Sometimes the two catch up with one another. That every now and then they touch one another and there is an explosion of that future life that we're working towards and it breaks out into our here and now and a miracle happens or someone gives their life to Jesus or prayer gets answered or a healing happens or even a resurrection from the dead. And no, some of those things, they don't happen Every day. You know, we only know of two resurrections from the dead in the book of Acts. We wish that they would happen more. But the harder we run and the more of us that run hard together, the more we will find ourselves catching up with eternity, with that eternal vision. The more we will experience it spilling into our lives in the here and now. And we will find more miracles of grace too. And those are the ones that we really need right now ourselves, isn't it? As a church here this morning, as we come to terms with some of our dear friends dying. But there are miracles of supernatural strength and comfort when we feel that pain. There are miracles of keeping a sweet and a worshipping spirit when we feel a sense of loss and disappointment. There are miracles of discovering a hope that we will see our loved ones again in glory when we cross that finish line. And so we need to hold on to the resurrection and not let it go when it starts to seem further away from us than we would like it to be. And like Paul, we just need to say together that we're going to hold on to Jesus and the power of his resurrection in one hand and reach out for the prize of the promise of his coming with the other hand and run the race and run it to win. And that's what I want to encourage us all to do here in Ichthus Forest Hill today and every day from now on in to run the race and to run to win. And I want to pray for us this morning as we close. And maybe there are just three things on that last slide. Maybe one of these things is what you want to receive this morning, and I just want to pray each of them for us. Lord Jesus, some of us this morning, we're looking for discernment, and we want to be free from deception. 
So I pray now that your Holy Spirit will come and fill us with the spirit of wisdom so that we can discern truth. I pray that you deliver us from any deceptions that may have got hold of our lives because of the confusion of the world. Deliver us, Lord Jesus. Set us free from deceptive thinking, from wrong thoughts, from wrong understandings, from ideas or concepts that set themselves up against the truth of Jesus. Deliver us in Jesus' name. Lord, I want to pray for any who are looking this morning for a clear conscience, for the peace that comes with that. Lord, I pray, come and meet with us. Come and cleanse us. You speak over our lives. Let us hear your words, your assessments, your judgment, Lord. Yours is the only one that matters. Help us to hear it, to let go of our own. Cleanse us, renew us, forgive us, we pray. And Lord, I want to pray that you will help us to run the race. Lord, I pray that where we feel defeated or tired or like we've lost heart, enter in again in Jesus' name. Cause us to reach out and take hold of all that lies ahead. Help us to press on, Lord Jesus, towards that goal. Help us to run towards the things you got hold of us for so we can get hold of them together. May we not grow weary. May we not lose heart. Let us believe and trust there's a resurrection coming. We want to be part of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let your